Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guests. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. Several years ago, a writer named Carl Armading relayed a story of going to visit the zoo. And while he was there, spending some time looking at the wildcat cage, but while he was there looking at those creatures, an older gentleman came into the cage with a broom and began just to sweep around, cleaning the cage. Didn't have anything else on him, no weapons, no knives, no nothing, and just began to sweep away. And In fact, got so close to the animal that he began to sweep and actually hit the wildcat with the broom. And the wildcat hissed at him a little bit and then just walked over to a different part of the cage and laid down again. And a few minutes later, after that was done, Mr. Aldering caught the man and said, that, that was amazing. He said, that, that must be, you, you must be so brave. And the older gentleman kind of laughed and said, no, I, I ain't brave. And, and Mr. Aldering said, well, then that's got to be a tame wildcat, right? And the man said, no, sir, he, he ain't tame. Mr. Aldring thought for a second and he said, okay, if that's, if you're not brave and if that's not a tame wildcat, then explain to me how you could do that job, just be right there close to him. And with an air of not arrogance, but very confident in his work and what he had done, the older zookeeper said, sir, that wildcat is old. He ain't got no teeth. We are here this morning to, for the next few minutes, consider one who, if you will, may be old but still had some teeth. We're in the middle of a series in the book of Revelation. We're not trying to concern ourselves with every verse or every symbol or everything found in it. But where we're taking some time to think about those places in Scripture in the book of Revelation where it tells us to behold something, to look at something. But as we read our Scripture this morning from Revelation chapter 12, you may have thought... And you're probably right. This may be the strangest one in this whole series because it's not something glorious. It's not, for example, where we began with the Almighty God. It's not the picture of Christ conquering something. It's not what we'll study in two weeks when we resume this series thinking about how Christ is just amazing. It's not picturing heaven or judgment or anything along those lines. But instead, it's a negative picture. Because Revelation chapter 12 and verse 3 tells us to behold the great dragon. Or, as we're calling our lesson this morning, behold Satan, our enemy. It is a sobering thing that the book of Revelation pauses for this time and tells us to think about the one who is against us. Now... The scripture, and we spent some time reading this morning, as Brian read it for us, the first six verses of Revelation chapter 12, is a very confusing text. 
And I'm sorry, we're not going to take time to explain everything in it this morning. Suffice it to say that those six verses are basically meant to picture, it seems, how Satan would try to thwart the coming of Christ. But that's really all we're going to think about from that text. We're going to go down later in Revelation 12 in just a moment. But we know this is our enemy. We know this is Satan. It talks about a great dragon. It talks about all this stuff. So how do you know that? Well, think about, first of all, the fact how our enemy is described in the text we read. Because I want to build this up for a moment. Because he's described as having seven heads, vast knowledge, extreme levels of intelligence. He's described as having ten horns, horns being the symbol of power. So very powerful, a strong individual. He's described as having seven crowns, a ruler, one who rules over many. And you may think, yeah, but that's still a dragon who has this weird, weird description, seven and ten and seven and all this stuff. How do we know that this is Satan? How do we know this is our enemy? Because of something found later after our scripture reading. If you look down at verse nine of Revelation chapter 12, you have this description. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's that verse that we want to use for the next few minutes as our outline this morning to behold our enemy who is Satan. We need to remember that calling Satan our enemy is a very biblical concept. In fact, a verse we're going to mention a couple of times this lesson at least, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 may have come to your mind as soon as we put that picture or that those words on the screen of Satan being our enemy. There, Peter said, be sober, be vigilant, or be watchful, be vigilant. Because your adversary, your enemy, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking someone to devour. So calling Satan our enemy is not just something we just throw out there. It is a biblical concept. But when you think about Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, I want to simply walk through that verse this morning and note how he is depicted there as our enemy. And there are four descriptions of him found in that one verse that should cause us all to not just say, well, that's a bad thing, but should cause us all to want to stay as far away from him and as far away from his influence as we possibly can stay. In the first place, he is called the serpent. And when you consider that terminology, of course, your minds probably go back to very early on in Scripture. In fact, Genesis chapter 3. Where in Genesis chapter 3, you remember how the first sin on earth was committed. How Adam and Eve fell into that sin. But how Genesis chapter 3 begins It's a very interesting text as the chapter begins by telling us now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts in the field or of the garden. The old King James says he was more subtle. The word translated crafty or subtle in that verse is an interesting term because the word carries with it the idea of one who has intelligence. They use intelligence. But then the word also usually carries the idea of using that intelligence for a negative reason. 
The other reference I have on the screens before you is another place where the same word is found in Job chapter 15 and verse 5. Not talking about Satan, but it may help us to see what this term means. Because in Job chapter 15, Eliphaz, one of those friends of Job, is throwing accusations at Job again. And one of them is this. For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. It's the same term as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty, subtle, than the other beast that God had made. The accusation that Eliphaz was throwing out was that Job was intelligent, but he was using his intelligence in a negative sense. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3 with that serpent of old. Folks, our enemy is not dumb. He is very intelligent. But he uses that intelligence in a negative or crafty or subtle way. And there in Genesis chapter 3, he did so in order to tempt the first man and the first woman. But maybe we need to take a moment to consider also how he did that in Genesis chapter 3. I'm told by those who study the Hebrew language and can much more well than I can, that you may recall that God had told the first man and the first woman that when they eat the fruit, they would surely die. But then Satan comes along and we say he added a word, right? You will not surely die. But I'm told by those who study the Hebrew language that he didn't actually add a word. He added one letter. If you study the Hebrew text, he added one letter to what God had said and simply changed the you shall into a negative. You shall not. That's how close what Satan said was to what God said. And yet we all know it was also how far away what Satan said was compared to what God said. He used something that seemed quite innocent, repackaged the message ever so slightly, and tempted that first couple in a crafty, subtle way. Is that not the way, or at least one way, in which Satan still works? It worked with Adam and Eve, and it continues to work and has continued to work throughout all time since. Satan is still intelligent. He's still crafty. And he takes something that seems quite innocent, repackages the message around it, and presents it as a way that seems so right and so good and so beautiful. But folks, we know those things. And it's why Paul could write it many years later that we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. I'm not saying anything this morning that you don't already know. But oh, how we need to be reminded of it. Because even though we are not ignorant of his devices or schemes or designs, how often we can still fall for them. When we read about that old serpent, that's the one we're reading about. Our enemy is intelligent, he's crafty. But we know how he works because it's the way he has always worked. That's your enemy. He is the serpent. But Revelation 12 and verse 9 goes on to call him the devil. That term devil is one that we use so often. But I wonder if we ever take the time to actually consider what it means. It's one of those terms that we just throw out there almost as a name. But it actually came from a term, not just a a name. The, The original word... I'm going to try to pronounce it here, is diabolos. It's the word from which we get our word diabolical. But the word devil, or the term devil, actually means accuser or slanderer. In fact, you see that just one verse later in this very same chapter. Revelation 12 and verse 10 speaks of him as being the accuser of our 
brothers. That's the same concept as the word devil. The devil, Satan, accuses or slanders those who are Christians. But the question because how does that work? Well, your mind may go back to the opening chapters of Job. And you'll recall in those opening chapters of Job how he's called there Satan is coming before God and talking about where he's been, roaming to and fro on the earth and going here and there. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. And then he gives all those beautiful qualities of Job. But what does Satan do? He doesn't go, well, yeah, you're right. He sure is a faithful one. No. Instead, he accuses Job. He says, basically, he says he's only faithful because you've put a hedge around. You've given him everything. Who wouldn't be faithful if they had money and businesses and family and all and health? Who wouldn't be faithful then? He's accusing Job of hypocrisy at the worst. But at the very least, he's accusing him of a shallow faith. I need to ask myself a very serious question. Because in the case of Job, it wasn't true. The accusation wasn't true. Job's faith is remarkable. Oh, it's, it's shaken and it's tested, of course, throughout that book. But it's a remarkable faith. He wasn't just faithful because he had stuff. But i got to ask myself this question. If devil means accuser, when my enemy looks at me, could he make an honest accusation? Is that not a question worth asking? Could he make an honest accusation? He is presented in Revelation chapter 12 as having those eyes, being wise. He knows stuff. He knows you and he knows me. Or would he have to use the other definition of this word? And that is a slanderer. Slander carries with it the idea of a lie. You make up something or just to present something. And that brings to mind what Jesus himself called Satan. In John chapter 8 and 44, he called him a murderer, but then he called him a a liar and the father of lies, or the father of it, speaking of the lies. Slander comes from evil. Slander is evil because it is a, a lie. Would Satan, would the devil have to lie, or could he simply just make an accusation about me? But either way, we know the truth of the matter that the devil will make certain that he accuses those of us who are faithful. And if necessary, he will slander those of us who are faithful. That's your enemy. He is the serpent. He is the devil. And then number three, he is called here Satan. The word translated Satan in Revelation 12 and verse 9 actually carries over an Old Testament Hebrew word. They would have pronounced it something more like shatan. But the idea is, the description is the word Satan. And the word here is similar to the word devil. That's why it says the devil and Satan. But it's not the same. Because it does carry the idea of an accuser. But in a more generic sense, the term Satan means an adversary. A moment ago, we referenced the the opening chapters of Job. And you remember in those opening chapters, he's called Satan. Your Bible may do this. Some Bibles put a footnote or something in the center column that when you see the the name or the term Satan the first time in the book of Job, it may have a footnote or something that, that points out the fact that every time you see the name or the term Satan in the book of Job, it actually is the Satan. In the Hebrew, it would be Ha-Shatan. 
And the reason it's there is because what the text is saying is this is the adversary in, if you please, the story of Job, although it's a real account. But also it is our adversary. Folks, our enemy is not just this group or that group or this political party or that political party or this thing or that thing. The enemy is Satan. That's the enemy. That's who we're fighting against. And that comes across, if we could see that, in that book of Job over and over and over again. Every time you see the the name or the term Satan, it is actually the Satan, the adversary. Another place that might be pointed out to us is in Luke chapter 22. Where you might recall in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus said to Peter, calling him Simon, 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 behold, Satan, accuser, demanded to have you. That he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again. Strengthen your brothers. Jesus was basically telling Peter or Simon. That Satan had Simon in his crosshairs. He was going to come after him. And we may not have a a direct revelation like that today. In other words, we might have God speaking to us or Jesus speaking to us saying, you know, right now, Satan's going to have you in his crosshairs. But folks, we know we have an enemy. And we know we have one who doesn't like us. And by the way, do you not find it interesting that it's Peter who will be the one who will call him our enemy? In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking one to devour. Peter knew what it was like to face the enemy and fail. Because he did. Denying Christ those three times that night. But don't you love that when Jesus said that to Peter or Simon as he called him there. He said, when you return, strengthen the brethren. There's an implication there that Jesus knew that Simon was going to fail. And he did. But there's also an implication there that Simon was going to learn from it. He was going to return. And he was going to be able to stand up at times and talk about the enemy. And talk about how to defeat the enemy. And he would. During World War II, there was a trick that the Allied forces used from time to time, especially in the European theater. Because of the technology of that day and time, airplanes and other things flew up high enough that, that they didn't have the, the t- type of technology now where they can tell everything that's on the ground. And some of you may remember this or have seen this, that the Allies often made tanks and other things out of wood. And we just set them in certain places because so many of the, the, the other forces, the enemy forces, could not tell that that was fake. And so it was a way to have them use ammunition on something that wasn't even, didn't make any difference whatsoever. Except at least in one case where it was actually the Nazis who figured out what was going on and dropped a wooden bomb on top of the wooden tank. Maybe even sometimes the enemy has a sense of humor. But folks, our enemy has no sense of humor. He is absolutely our enemy. There's nothing that he does that is funny. And there's nothing he does that has a sense of humor behind it. No matter how pleasing, no matter how delightful he may make a temptation look, he is not trying to give us a good life. He is our enemy. And his ultimate goal is to cause us to miss heaven His ultimate goal is not to cause us just to have some problems in this life. His ultimate goal is not just to cause us to have heartache in this life. His ultimate goal is to cause us to miss the glory of God forever. That's your enemy. He is the serpent. He is the devil. 
He is Satan. And number four, the text tells us that he is a deceiver. In fact, he's not just a deceiver, but the last part of verse 9, or verse 9 continues, I should say, by saying he is the deceiver of the whole world. And some of you are reading this morning from the King James Version. And at the end of that word deceive, you have that famous E-T-H ending. He deceiveth the whole world. And I like that in that verse because you may well know that E-T-H ending in the New Testament means that this is something that is continuous. He continually deceives the whole world. The word deceives there or deceiveth carries the idea of being led astray or falling away from the truth. In fact, W.E. Vine suggests that the word is connected with the idea of seducing something. And isn't that how our enemy works? He works by deception and by seducing away from the right path. I want you to do something for a moment. I want you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. Because I want you to think about this concept that he deceives the whole world. And there are two verses, or two passages, I should say, in 2 Corinthians that make that abundantly clear to us. The first is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 4, what we're told in that verse, in this case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There he's described as the God of this world, but his activity is blinding the minds or blinding the eyes, some translations have. We, now, we let that happen. In other words, Satan doesn't make us sin. But Satan is able to put certain things out there that we begin to believe are true or good. We begin to be like those back in Isaiah's day who put good for evil and evil for good, who put salt for bitter and bitter for salt. We begin to think that way. But did you notice the text says he does that to the unbelievers? You may think, well, then it's not a problem for us. Same letter, probably three or four pages over in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As Paul is beginning to draw that letter to a close, 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 13, he wrote these words. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now, in chapter 4 and verse 4, it had been blind in the minds or the eyes of the unbelievers. But now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is saying that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Who would that affect? People who are trying to do what's right. People who are trying to see the light, if you will. People who are trying to walk in the light, as 1 John would have it. Satan can disguise himself, tempt in certain ways that seem so righteous and good and caring and lovely until they're compared to the actual light, which is the Word of God. Folks, that's why we could see in Revelation twelve nine that He is the deceiver of the whole world. Not just unbelievers, but also believers who are not careful to avoid His temptations. In Sun Tzu's famous work, The Art of War, he wrote in the very first chapter, All warfare is based upon deception. Hence, when able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must seem inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe we are far away. When far away, we must make him believe we are near. 
Now Sun Tzu there was writing about, of course, physical warfare, military warfare. But you and I know we are in a spiritual battle. Ephesians chapter 6 makes that abundantly clear, as do many other passages, that we do wrestle against cosmic powers. We wrestle against those things that, that are truly against us, that we are in a war, we are in a battle. But how often can we fall to nothing more than simple deception? In 1941, the New York Times, as well as many other publications, fell victim to one of the greatest hoaxes ever put forward in our country. It involved printing scores for a football team that didn't exist. A man named Norris, uh, Morris Newberger made up a school, the Plainfield Teachers College in New Jersey. And back in that day and time, he simply called in scores to newspapers and they would print them. And so he began to talk about how this school, Plainfield, New Jersey Teachers College, had won a football game. There's one problem. There's no such thing as Plainfield Teachers College. But the New York Times ran with it, put the score in there. He and his friend thought it was hilarious, so the next week they did the same thing. The problem became they had to start making up other schools for them to play. Because they couldn't play a real school like a Penn State or a Rutgers or something. So they made up other schools they were playing. And they even wrote a fight song. Now, I'm not going to sing it because it was only a poem. They didn't actually come up with the music for it. And they began to write the story of the star running back who scored about half the team's touchdowns. Until finally, about four or five weeks into this whole hoax, people began to say, we've never heard of this school. And a couple simple phone calls proved it to be completely untrue. Interestingly, the New York Times never printed an apology or a change. However, Time Magazine decided to actually swallow their pride. And this is what they wrote. For three weeks running, the sports page of the New York Times has dutifully recorded the football victories of Plainfield, New Jersey Teachers College. The Philadelphia Record and other papers also took occasional notice of unbeaten Plainfield teachers. The only error in all the reports was that Plainfield and its opponents were non-existent. End quote. I would say that's worth a retraction, wouldn't you? I share that story to lighten the mood of this lesson a little bit, but also to show just how easy it is for us to be deceived. And folks, that's nothing more important than football. Who really cares? Our, our enemy does not really care who we root for, who we vote for, what we do here. Our enemy wants us lost forever. And he will use any deception necessary in order to do just that. And Revelation 12, 9 reminds us that he does that to the whole world. The truth is, he is real. And his deceptions and these descriptions should wake us up to the fact that he is a formidable enemy that we should always have our eyes open for. Again, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 begins by telling us, be sober or be watchful and be vigilant. Every time I read that passage, I can't help but get in my mind what an old preacher one time said from the pulpit when he said, you read that verse, you should think, keep your eyes open and keep your head on straight. Now, that may not be the exact meaning of the Greek language, but that's what Peter meant. Be watchful, be vigilant. Four points this morning. And you may look at those things and think, I thought the gospel was good news. And we spent 20-something minutes thinking about our enemy and how he is our enemy and how he's been our enemy since Genesis chapter 3. 
And how he is diabolical, the devil. He is the accuser, the slanderer. And how he is the Satan, the adversary. And how he deceives the whole world, outsiders as well as those who are trying to do what's right. How in the world can that possibly be good news? I've got one more thing to conclude with. It's not in Revelation 12, 9, but folks, it's the good news. You want to know what it is? He is defeated. And notice how that's worded. It does not say he will be defeated. Our enemy is defeated. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when he's introduced to us as being more crafty or subtle than any other beast of the field, and we're told that he did lead, or he did put the temptation, I should say, before Eve and Adam, and they fell into that temptation, they sinned, everything seemed to fall apart. And you and I continue to have difficulty because sin is in the world. But even in that opening chapter, even when we're introduced to him, there's hope. Because in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, as God is punishing that serpent who was more crafty, he told him about one who would be the seed of woman who would crush his head. And when Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later broke the chains of death, he was defeated. And ladies and gentlemen, all we're doing now is waiting for the clock to run out. That's all we're doing. In fact, we're told by Jesus himself that hell was the place that prepared not for you, but it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25 and verse 41. In fact, Even in our very chapter, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12, you read these words. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Listen, you have an enemy who is powerful, but he's not all powerful. You have an enemy who is wise and intelligent, but he's not all-knowing. You have an enemy who can do many things and tempt you in many, many ways, but he's already lost the war. I want to ask a question that may seem like it's over the top, but I pray you'll understand why I'm asking it the way I am. Why in the world... Would I follow a liar to hell when I can follow the truth to heaven? And we live in a world that says there's no such thing as right and wrong. It says, oh, there's a heaven and there's a God, but there's no enemy. There's no negative side to any of this. When you and I know that I have to do what Peter said. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh continually about, seeking someone to devour. Why would I risk heaven for him?
this morning, maybe Satan has put some temptation before you and you've fallen victim to it. It's not that he made you do it. He can't do that. But he is still crafty. He still tempts. And he still knows what buttons to push. And maybe this morning there's something in your life that you've fallen victim to that you know separates you from God. Maybe this morning you've never put your your trust, your life, into the ultimate victory that Jesus won on the cross and proved to be true by overcoming death. And the way you respond to that is by obedience to the will of God and turning from those things that are sinful, confessing Jesus as Lord and being baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Let me tell you, there's no verse that says this. But all of us who have done it knows, knows it to be true. That if you will do that in faith, when you come up out of the waters of baptism, you will never have felt more victorious in your life. Because God will have helped you defeat the ultimate enemy. But maybe this morning as a Christian, there's something in your life that's keeping you from walking in the light and being faithful. Satan's won a few battles. And if I may go back to the statement a moment ago, you don't want to follow him into hell. You want to come to you want to return, excuse me, to the truth, the light, and follow Christ into heaven. Can we pray for you for forgiveness or encouragement? Whatever your need is, will you come? We'll be saying and sing to encourage you.